Hey, on the Matt Townsend Show today, we are talking about passion. Would you consider yourself passionate about something? Especially today, though, we're talking about passion and your work and the job. What makes your calling in life? And what about those callings that lead you to the poorhouse? Should you do them anyway? We're talking about it coming up after the news on the Matt Townsend Show. Good afternoon. I'm Sam McCall for Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Clean up after Hurricane Sandy is finally starting to finish up, which means the bills are starting to pour in. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is asking the federal government for $30 billion in aid money to help pay the mounting costs associated with Sandy. Long Island Power Authority announced today that they are restoring power to almost all of the remaining 75,000 people who have been in the dark after Sandy for two straight weeks. Public transportation is also coming back online on a larger scale, making commutes for many New Yorkers much easier. Cuomo's $30 billion aid plan will go to things like repaying emergency crews that worked overtime, repairing bridges and commuter lanes, and creating a loan fund for small businesses that have sustained significant damage due to the storm. Lance Armstrong has now officially stepped down as a board member from the Live Strong charity that he founded in 1997. Live Strong provides aid to individuals and families dealing with cancer. Armstrong had previously relinquished his position as chairman of the charity and has now decided to leave the board as well in order to preserve the organization from any fallout surrounding his now debunked cycling career. All seven of Armstrong's Tour de France championship titles have been nullified by the sport's governing body after the U.S. anti-doping agency provided mounting evidence that the cyclist used performance-enhancing drugs. A spokesperson from the charity says that Armstrong, who personally donated over $7 million, will remain involved with Livestrong, just not as a board member. President Barack Obama marked Veterans Day yesterday by laying the ceremonial wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier at Arlington National Cemetery. The president also gave remarks about the future of U.S. vets and how he will continue to make sure they are taken care of as wars in the Middle East continue to wind down. This year marked the first Veterans Day in a decade that no U.S. troops were fighting in Iraq, something President Obama touted while on the campaign trail. In his remarks yesterday, the president voiced his support for vets transitioning back into civilian life, saying that returning heroes should not have to fight for a job or a roof over their heads or the health care they need after fighting for this country. The latest Bond movie had the biggest opening weekend in the franchise's history by over $20 million. Skyfall raked in $87.8 million over its first three days, putting it right on track to become the most successful 007 flick ever. Forecasters think there's still a lot more to be made by the movie, with the lucrative Thanksgiving weekend on its way as well. The 23-film series' previous champion was the 2008 feature Quantum of Solace, which also cast Daniel Craig as the legendary spy. But just four years later, some think that Skyfall could be the first Bond film ever to breach the $200 million mark. You're listening to BYU Radio on Sirius XM 143. I'm Sam McCall. Good afternoon, my friends of America. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Matt Townsend, your guide on the side. 
Everyone laughs about that line. I don't care. Because I am their guide. Some people think I'm their guy on the side. I'll be that if you need me. I'm not even sure what it's supposed to mean. The guide. I'm a guide on the side, not a sage on the stage. That sounds like mashed potatoes. (laughs) Your your potatoes on the side. Your (sighs) corn on the cob on the side. Your guide on the side. (laughs) Rob, stop. Like you're not a guide full time. Just on the the side. side. You're moonlighting as a guide. You're the main course guide. Okay. (laughs) I'm done. Dessert guide. You guys do the show. Fine. Okay, Skylar, take it over. <laughs> Don't let Skylar touch this show. <laughs> you are not touching this show, Sky. Put your hands, take your hands off the buttons. <laughs> Jeepers creepers. Hey, uh, did you guys have a good weekend? I had a great weekend. Yeah, it's pretty good. What'd you do? Anybody want to talk? No, that's all that you there need to say. There was a ton of snow here in Utah. Do you guys oh have gosh, a shovel, yeah. though, right? You um, don't have to actually shovel your snow. Luckily, yeah, my uh, apartment complex shovels it for me. Lucky. If you, as a listener, are driving around in a climate that gets snow and it has hills too. Yes, hilly snow. I completely empathize now because the Salt Lake City area is a, it's a valley floor. It's a basin. It's pretty flat. Yeah. And so I always thought, oh, yeah, I'm a big hot shot. I've been driving in the snow for you know a long time. I found myself stuck in the Avenues District of Salt Lake City. Which is a hill. Uh, yeah, visiting some friends. Left about a uh, quarter of midnight. And my car's parked on a hill <laughs> on a one-way street going, pointing up. Uh, and so yeah. it, was, it was a nightmare just getting the car to the top of the hill because you're sliding. Everybody's yeah. sliding around. No. And then it's uh, A Street goes straight back down. Down another hill. To a street called South Temple. And I thought – and there's a light at the bottom. They call that the death intersection. Yeah, and I almost went down it. Well, let me just tell you how you get out of that. See, you went up the hill. You should have just done a little Dukes of Hazard reverse flip, <laughs> and you would have been heading straight down. You wouldn't have wasted the gas going up, and you just could have skidded it down through South Temple and prayed you didn't hit anybody. But anyway, I, I completely empathize for anybody who lives in a city with hills and snow. I agree. Yeah. I learned something magical this weekend about tires, okay? Uh, they are so important. Oh, yeah. And not even the tire itself, just the traction on the tire. So I have two tires. I call them baldy. And um, I was stuck in a snowstorm. My wife, by the way, told me Friday, you have bald tires. You probably ought to go get some tires. Okay. Well, Saturday, uh, I was in a hurry and driving with bald tires. And what I learned is when you have bald tires, you can't – actually turn through a roundabout. Really? <laughs> so roundabouts are round. You slide. That's uh-huh. So and you don't slide round. You slide That's straight. So funny. <laughs> anyway, so I learned you don't you can't go through a roundabout. Did uh, you get into another accident? No. But okay, just... I did ding my ding on my ding my car. I made a ding. Oh bummer. But don't tell anybody because nobody knows. It's just my little secret. Okay. So I'm buying tires soon. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to wait till the next storm. I do feel bad when I – the off-ramp I use to go home, I get off the freeway is one of those round, loopy ramps. Yes. And I got off the freeway Friday night and the fresh snow was covering the ramp and everything. And right as you start to come to that first corner of the ramp, there was a set of uh, tire marks that had uh, brushed away the snow yeah. that went straight to the wall. Right into the gully. <laughs> oh, no. And, uh, that's sad. That was probably me. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. That's why you need. <laughs> so everybody out there in driving land, make sure you've got actually have traction. Winterize your car. Winterize is a great idea. Matt, I needed a blanket. Winterize your car, too. 
I'm on it. Okay, you guys ready for some news? Okay, first of all, I got to make a huge announcement. So I have six kids. You guys know that? Yep. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Uh, we had them years ago, so we haven't really thought about them lately. And um, I'm talking to my nine-year-old, cutest kid you've ever seen. Uh, looks a lot, a lot like his father. And um, actually like his mother, totally. But he made a decision today. And this is an important thing because for all of you out there in listener land, this, you can make these kind of decisions. So we were talking as we were getting him ready for school, and this is what he said. Uh, Mom and Dad, I've made a decision that I will never, ever, ever be a terrorist. <laughs> and um, which, honestly, if you that's knew a, the boy. That's a good choice. Well, that's a good choice. If you knew the boy, so we funny. wondered. We really wondered if he wasn't on the fast track. But he decided, I'm not, I'm not going to do it, Dad. I'm not doing it because it's just dangerous. And people, you get shot and burnt. It's bad, bad. So, so I will never do that. So nothing with the moral, just personal no. harm. Yeah, he doesn't want to be so hurt. That's so funny. But I think he's been playing a video game at a friend's house, we found out, that is about apparently killing terrorists. And I think the, the terrorists are losing. <laughs> and he's like, so I'm not doing that, Dad, just so you know. And we're like, we're so proud of you, you little terrorist. So, uh, by the way, and that's good because we now he's making the decision at nine. When you make the decision at nine, what do you now know? You know the rest of his life, no more terrorism, right? Yep. I mean, you do, you do joke about that, but I mean, people who at age nine decide, I don't want to smoke. They usually never smoke. Yeah. So I, I mean. Yeah, he didn't. He hasn't made that decision. Oh, geez. Should I worry about that? Probably. Baby steps. This was a big one. This well, let's get the big things off the radar first. Then let's get down to the little Just have steps. Have him go over to his friend's house and play the video game where they're a surgeon or something, and yeah, then he'll say, "What? He still also that's what happens to a smoker's lungs." Yeah, that's that's not good. Hey, I also got some other good news. Check this out. What if you found out that they were making a Barbie doll that was going to be bald? Bald Barbie. Well, what's really? what are little brothers supposed to do with the Barbie? That's already, you know, bald. That's what? already where they've already cut the hair off. Yeah. Oh, Did you have little brothers? Off, you mean an like, evil terroristic what? little brother? Yeah, that's what know. little brothers do. I'm not mine. Mine pulled the heads off, so it's oh, still funny. a moot point. Oh wow! <laughs> is your kid? Is your brother okay? Has he yeah, been dealt he with? Yeah, he'll, he'll be okay. <laughs> The super Barbie. glue. I really love super glue. <laughs> You're gluing on Barbie's hair or head That's again. So funny. And then their head's always not right after that. So apparently beautiful and bald Barbie is Mattel's iconic blonde-figured uh, Barbie that's going to come out with a, her complete set of wigs, hats, scarves, and other accessories that kids can swap out uh, or remove at any whim. This is Barbie's attempt to help these little girls that are in hospitals around the country that are trying to deal with their hair loss. Okay, so is oh, it really this is like a cancer solidarity? Uh-huh, thing. So this is a oh, cancer. That's actually really cool. But the thing tool. is, I could see: is it really like a cancer thing, or are they just trying to make well, more money by well, selling new more Both. wigs? But they'll Both. probably then donate the money. I don't know if it says that they will, but hopefully, maybe they're going to donate the money. But it's about, you know, because there's some kids that don't have cancer. They have alopecia where they're losing their hair, and these girls might lose their self-esteem. And so they're doing this. Now, which is interesting to me because I grew up with a Barbie doll, but mine wasn't a Barbie. Mine was a G.I. Joe. You probably don't remember those. But anybody out there listening, but now they have really, they have different G.I. Joes. Back then, G.I. Joe had, and everybody listening, you'll know this, you know this, had little hair 
uh, fuzzy hair. You could feel it. But by the time you had had your G.I. Joe for like a year, you had already rubbed a lot of the hair off. <laughs> so, uh, so G.I. Joe, I, I'm already used to that. I'm already used to that. So I think it's neat. But, um, you know, it says Mattel will change. I, I have a question. Yes. Were G.I. Joes back then as, like, muscular as they are now? Yeah. They, they were. But, see, it wasn't so much. It was just about a healthy muscle mass. Okay. Yeah. It wasn't like now they're kind of puffy and deformed. Yeah, because like but back my... then they were just ripped, you know, a lot like me. Oh, so pretty much just you, but in an action figure type doll. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because... Why are you laughing? Why are you guys? <laughs> That's rude. So I'm thinking about. What the... are you looking at, Sky Boy? Don't give me that stink eye. <sighs> Two decades later, they nobody played with GI Joes. You get the little. Uh, yeah, the little plas- the plastic yeah, the green ones you army men. They a... were. Yeah, those with. weren't real G.I. Joe. A real G.I. Joe had a Jeep, to... had a gun. I don't know what generation Barbie. you're from. My generation, and I'm pretty young, like my brothers and I would play, like he'd have his G.I. Joes, I'd have my Barbie. We would play in the dream house. He'd be the daddy, I'd be yeah, the mommy. I did that that's with my like, daughter. That's, <laughs> no, that's you set you up a big army of green army men that's like 40 guys deep and War. a million guys War. wide. And then you get like the bowling ball bomb, which did is you, just the bowling ball. But did you have girls in the house, Rob? Oh, she was seven, eight You had a lot younger. of brothers. So that's the difference because yeah. we did that same thing. I grew up with three girls in the house. So my G.I. Joe would always pull up in a pink car. Yep. But much. he'd pull out a gun and just create havoc. <laughs> So it was very manly until he had to get his getaway in a pink Corvette. Or a but hey, pink it's motorhome. a Corvette. Like, if the enemies were colorblind. Oh, it's just know? like any action movie. The guy takes off in some car that he Hot normally would drive. pink car. Yeah. With a blonde. Chevy Caprice hair station wagon. In the wind. <laughs> it's cheap. The studio could blow up later in the movie. <laughs> See, I think it's great. We're, uh, we're taking care of people. Giving people the dolls they want. Well, speaking of things that are really fun and to play with and see, I guess. Um, so apparently, Are we talking about your hat? No. <laughs> She's sporting a hat. He's making a big deal of my hat. It's just a beanie, but he says I look gangster. You look like you're about to rob a bank. I do. I mean that in the best way possible. Okay. I will take I like that in it the best a lot. way possible. <laughs> it just looks like you're just about like to rob a bank. like a navy beanie, but anyways. Um, so apparently they... Um, they recovered some Titanic jewels in 1987, um, but now they're going to go on display. So now you can oh, go see them. So yes, I, think, I remember that. Yeah, I think that's kind of cool that it's like now you can see what these are because, you know, from that period it was, you know, the Edwardian period. So they have very um, – like some kind of really distinct jewelry. Yeah. And so it's oh. like – Yeah, that was Say no down more. Okay, I think I see the theme here. What? Jewels. And you're a gang- you have a hat that looks like you're going to steal them. <laughs> it's bringing back an old story of you and your jewel heist. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that funny? The I irony. was like five or four. Don't, don't make up excuses. <laughs> it was a rock heist. It was a rock, rock, rock heist. It wasn't really a jewel. It was more like a rock. <laughs> For those that haven't listened long enough, um, really, poor Madison here um, oh came clean on a jewel heist. She had stolen a rock from a quarry. <laughs> no, it was like... When you go to rest stops and they have a whole bunch of polished rocks and you can like fill up the bag and yeah. pay two bucks she for it. She was a child. I she meant no harm. <laughs> but she, she, and then she admitted it on air to clear her heart. 
and her conscience. We uh-huh. appreciate that. Yeah. So you want so those that are in charge of the Titanic, Jules. I guess I just watch out. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Watch out for Madison. <laughs> cool story. That's actually pretty neat. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool. I like pretty it. Snazzy. Robbie, do you have a news? For I us? wish I could segue this, but how do you go from Titanic Jules to cars that talk to one another? Ooh. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, the Why story. Cars talk? The story is that Toyota is developing cars that can talk to sensors in the road and talk to other cars to keep them from crashing into one another. Okay. Looking uh, 20 years out, 10, 20 years out of how cars are going to be built. Because there was a time everything was experimental in the car. There was a time in the 1950s and 60s they were putting – Bumpers. Inflatable and... bags in the dashboard that you would hit in I an know, accident. Those were so kooky. And, uh, you know, 20, 30 years later, it's standard. So they're playing with the future of automobiles. But the real story here isn't the neat press release here about yeah. all the cool stuff they're trying to tell us about Toyota. It's about the uh, facility they're using to test the cars. It's uh, in Japan. It's at the corner of Toyota's complex. But it's the size of three baseball stadiums, basically, wow. in terms of – Square area, and they've built a bunch of normal-looking roads, but they've put all kinds of sensors in the road, and so they've they've tried some things like they have a fictional red light, you know, yeah, and then they drive the car forty miles an hour towards it and not hit the brake. The car can do neat things like, uh, excuse me, that's a red light, you need to stop. Oh my! They'll say it out loud, and then if you still ignore it, they'll slam the vehicle. It'll slam on the brakes. Does the car have somebody sitting inside like my wife that when I do something like that, she screams and lifts her leg over her head? (laughs) Ah, Crash. Because what fun is that? What fun is having your car slow down when you could have everyone in the family screaming at you from the back seat? That's true. Well, this is for when the days you're uh, driving by yourself. Oh, that's a great idea. It kind of reminds me of uh, what was the TV show where the car would talk? Kit. Yeah. Knight Rider. Knight Rider. Oh, that's a good show. No, it's it's the Toyota – Take on that. It's the Toyota take on Knight Rider. So they're but they're <laughs> trying all kinds of neat things, uh, blind spot detection. A lot of uh, high end luxury totally. cars yeah. have that now. Where as you're changing lanes, it'll bong, 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 yeah. let you know to. Um, they do that they, again. I like yeah. Oh yeah. You got to close that. the door. Uh, <laughs> I heard that the other day, and I'm like, "What is wrong?" And I, apparently, we had to close Rob's door. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Didn't we, Rob? Let's You're, talk about uh, okay. pedestrians crossing the street, too. The car will stop for them, too. They had, will they had it really? some guy walk out in front of the car, and the car stopped. I See, would not be the guy that's that walks cool. out in front of the car. What about the day that you don't even have to drive? You just get in and just drink your drink and watch TV. And it gets you de- into deeper theoretical questions, like as you add safety devices to cars, do people become more complacent in yes. their driving? There's a book uh, I skimmed once. I didn't really read Skimmed. it. I, I believe it was called uh, Freakonomics. Yes. And they said as we've added safety devices, people drive more recklessly. So if that's true, we should put a spear on the steering wheel. Ooh. And then everybody would drive very safely. Steering spears. Because, I think it's a great Because then idea. you have um, skin in the game to make sure that you never, no. ever crash. And don't sneeze I either. Don't think I think it was a little bit of a modest proposal. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, keep keep at it, Rob. Uh, we'll get on that. Steer in the spear. Spear in the steering wheel. Hmm. I don't think it'll catch on. <laughs> but it's our little attempt to help you all help you all out there live this crazy thing we call life. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we are going to start talking about passion. Do you have it in your life? Do you know what your mission, your purpose in life is? Is do you feel like you're changing the world? If you were sick and about to die. 
Would you feel like your mission's accomplished? Job well done. We're talking about it with an expert, how to find your passion and your purpose. Coming up on the Matt Townsend Show right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. A fleet of robotic ocean explorers powered by the waves themselves. This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories of revolutionary ideas, emerging technologies, and the people behind the concepts that shape the future. NASA astronaut Ed Liu spent months on the International Space Station, where he got a good look at the vastness of Earth's oceans from high above. Now he sees them from a different angle. Retired from NASA, Liu joined a company called Liquid Robotics and is working on autonomous ocean surveyors called wave gliders. Looking like surfboards with solar panels on top and wavelength vanes underneath, their water wings capture the free energy of passing waves and convert it into propulsion for the platform. Solar panels power the craft's sensors and radio links. Remote operators drive wave gliders any place on the ocean they need to go, and they can stay at sea indefinitely, gathering data for scientific and industrial needs. Recently, Liquid Robotics sent a fleet of wave gliders on a record-setting 300-day, 60,000-kilometer expedition from Hawaii to Japan and Australia. Scientists participating in the PAC-X contest by Ed's company could win six months of free access to the probes to gather any data they like. The rest of us can follow their progress on Google Earth Ocean. For Innovation Now, this is Buddy Rubino. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. For regular updates on BYU radio programming, sports, and other behind-the-scenes news, follow BYU Radio on Twitter. Just search for BYU Radio, hit follow, and enjoy our tweets on news, live updates on shows, and much more. Talk about good. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about, you know, finding your calling in life, your purpose, and making sure that uh, you're on target, that you know what you are supposed to be doing in this crazy life that we're living. And so we're all searching for our callings in life, and we all want to make a difference. Our producer, Madison Allred, chose to highlight a person that she truly believed that, or that they truly believed that their profession was their calling and how it changed the world. Florence Nightingale, the founder of Modern Medicine. She's truly one of my favorite figures in history. Her work in the Crimean War influenced the whole world for her reform of sanitary conditions in military field hospitals. But at the time, being a nurse was something for women that were a little rougher, and her family was opposed to it. So what made her pursue this career? Florence Nightingale said that nursing was her calling from God, and that she knew that it was her mission in life. Nightingale had a knack for mathematics, and so she had considered going into that field since it would be more suited for a well-educated woman at the time. But with this calling, she knew that she needed to practice medicine. She seized every opportunity she could to help those that were in need, such as sick friends and relatives, and on her travels, she studied the different hospitals in Europe and Egypt. When she was finally able to pursue training, she amplified her talent 
and used her knowledge to drop the mortality rate of wounded soldiers in field hospitals from 60% to 2.2%. When she returned, she pushed for reform in all military hospitals and even gained the attention of the queen. She was able to open her own training school and not only trained wonderful nurses, but transformed nursing from its disreputable past into a responsible and respectable career for women. Even when she was bedridden from an illness she contracted in the Crimea, she continued on her work by writing books, reports, and pamphlets. She magnified her abilities, and despite limitations, she continually strived to serve and fulfill her calling in life. It gave her continual joy, and she truly changed the world. Excellent work, Madison. Oh, thank you. I had no idea about Florence Nightingale. Oh, I love her. That's a big deal, changing it from, what was it, 60% To 2.2. To 2.2. Yeah, it's crazy. And yeah. all that was is just because um, what they actually did is that they would have the soldiers, like, lying on the floor yeah, with, good. you know, all of that. And, like, the rodents would just, you know, like, go over them. And, you know, so, of course, like, typhus and cholera was everywhere. Yes. And so, you know, That's just... why I won't let you guys lay on the floor here. Because <laughs> that's messed up. Yeah. I, I'd let you, Skyboy. Well, Madison sleeps back there. I know, oh, my gosh. That's why I'm worried about her. I think she has some infection <laughs> uh, yeah. from the rodents. Twitch, twitch. No, um, yeah, but it was, really, it was really cool. And just because of that, I mean, you know, at the time, like, being a nurse, it was kind of like if you were a nurse, like, you would always be drunk. Right. Or you're a little bit more promiscuous. But... You know, she turned it into a reputable career. Profession. Yeah. That's it's sweet. like now, like if you're a nurse, it's like respect. She's you have so much. Unless you're a drunk, training. promiscuous nurse. <laughs> yes. That's different. Unless you're one of those. But, but she, see, that's interesting because everyone's out there sitting there like, well, yeah, but that's just her. She's great. She was the one that could do that. No, but like her influence because, you know, she started that school and um, because she was um, British and so she got the attention from the queen. She was able to have an audience with her and to be able to institute this where like for all the hospitals Powerful. um yeah and then she also what was it um she did work in india and also she was um she helped in the american civil war to keep the field hospital sanitary she was the bomb oh yeah and and we want to talk on the show today about how we get the same kind of passion in our own lives how we detect our own callings do you guys feel like you know how to do that I mean, maybe, like, because kind of, for my thing, it's like, try everything and see what you're good at, yeah. you know? Touch them all, we call that in baseball. Yeah. <laughs> Touch them all. Skyboy, do you feel like you have your calling down? I think I do. What is it? I'd like to know. I didn't know. I think it's to board up the Matt Townsend show. Oh. You've reached Nirvana. Yeah, this is this is where I've wanted to be my whole life, and I'm here. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. You know, boom. You need to pick your sights up a little bit. <laughs> and I don't want to push on you, but you you got to dig a little deeper. I think this is as good as it gets. Okay. Well, <laughs> we're going to be bringing on an expert that I'm seriously hoping uh, can shake you out of that. Dr. Jeff Thompson is going to be coming on after this break. He's an associate professor at Brigham Young University, and he's going to help us. He has actually worked with zookeepers. No way. Yeah, which so I totally relate to him because I feel like a lot of times this show is like working <laughs> with zookeepers. Zoo. Well, not zookeepers, no, but I think that's really cool. It's way cool. Able to do that. But he's got some interesting insight and research about how to find your calling in your in your life, and uh, and and you know the impact it has on you, the impact it has on your desire to go to work. 
to to keep coming back. So we're going to be talking about that uh, after this break with Dr. Jeff Thompson. While you're sitting there waiting, I would love you to be thinking, do you have your calling? What is it you're passionate about? What, you know, what are the likes? What have you found? What is it that if you could spend all day doing, you would do this one thing? And how could you use that to create a calling Matt in your Townsend life? Matt Townsend Show 24-7. That's my dream. Okay. Once again, <laughs> we'll, work, we'll work you through on that. Uh, thanks, Guy Boy. <laughs> We're going to take a break right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Here at BYU Radio, we'd love to have your feedback on our shows. Take our survey on byuradio.org or on our Facebook page. If you do, you'll be entered to win a $25 iTunes card or a BYU TV gift set. Just click on the survey link and tell us how we're doing. Oh, and while you're on BYU Radio's Facebook page, you might as well like us for updates on shows, sports, and more. Good afternoon, I'm Sam McCall for Sirius XM 143, BYU Radio. The Syrian conflict has once again expanded beyond the country's borders. This time, regime artillery fire spilled over into Israel, which has prompted a quick response. Israeli military officials ordered direct fire into Syria for the first time since the 1974 conflict, hitting specific mobile artillery targets. The retaliation is being described by Israeli officials as warning shots because both sides know that the Syrian shell was inadvertent. Similar to early engagements between Syria and Turkey, Israel's military is is responding so sharply in order to avoid any further accidental escalation or spillover from the growing conflict. The rebel forces in Syria have finally officially banded together under a single umbrella body in order to seek political recognition. After a fairly unfruitful string of talks last week, a tentative agreement was finally signed yesterday. The agreement should help the rebel forces to receive foreign aid and could potentially open the door for military aid. Western governments have been skeptical of providing military aid to the rebel forces because until now, there has been no accountable body to make sure weapons do not get into the wrong hands. The United States will overtake both Saudi Arabia and Russia as the world's top oil producer by 2017, according to the International Energy Agency. Oil imports by the U.S. are continuing to shrink as new oil fields are opened up in the U.S., boosting chances that the nation can become energy independent in the foreseeable future. The IEA's latest report gives one of the most optimistic predictions about energy policy for the U.S. to date, showing a net oil export by 2030 and total energy independence by 2035. One of the biggest players in that forecast is natural gas, which is on track to replace much of the coal and oil U.S. energy has been dependent on for decades. Republicans appear to be ready to try and make a deal with Senate Democrats and the president to help avoid the looming fiscal cliff. Senate Republican Bob Corker says that Republicans understand that some increases in taxes on the wealthy will have to be part of the plan, though he says closing loopholes is a better option than raising the overall tax rate. 
President Barack Obama has invited top leaders from both parties to the White House this Friday to discuss the issue. With just 50 days to go before the end of the year when budget cuts and tax hikes begin a $600 billion cutback, which could send the recovering economy spiraling back into recession, both officials at the White House and congressional leaders are looking for a solution as soon as possible. You're listening to BYU Radio on Sirius XM 143. I'm Sam McCall. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, today, we got a great topic. We are talking about your calling in life. You feel like you have one. If somebody came up and said, Dad, hey, what's your calling? Uh, would you say, what are you talking about? You mean my phone number? What are you looking for, son? Um, my calling, I feel like I, I kind of have a calling. I mean, I feel like I do have a calling. And it's not necessarily – a lot of people think your calling can only come from a religious place. Like it's, it's only from your church or it could only be your job. Uh, mine feels like it's more just who I am, but we'll get into that with our good Dr. Jeff Thompson here. Before I uh, bring Jeff on, I just had a really interesting thing that happened. At um, I do a radio show also on the weekend in Salt Lake City. Uh, KSL is the name of the station. And there's a guy on the show, station that's been there 30 years. His name is Larry Sagers. He's a 63-year-old man, and he is the he does the Greenhouse Show. So he's like a master gardener, and uh, I think he has a PhD in horticulture, and honestly is a fairly nerdy kind of guy. Like nerdy, he'd even like be okay saying that. But there's nobody on earth that knows more about you know gardening than this guy, and bugs, and building you know warming uh, houses or whatever for your plants and and greenhouses and things. Anyway, he just passed away. And after he passed away, they've been doing a lot of shows on them. And one of the interesting things that seems to come up a lot about Larry, who did TV or radio for 30 years and had a, was a journal, had, a, had an entry into the local paper here in Utah, but is his passion. And he's revered for his passion. And he was he would literally just – he was involved in everything you could do when it comes to gardening. On his radio show every Saturday, I would follow him. My show follows his show. But it's hard to get people to call in on a show you know, because you got to really hit a subject they're interested in. But Larry Sagers would sit down and about 11 or 12 different callers would immediately call in and his, li- his show would light up with callers every single day, three hours a week for uh, literally 30 years. So – I totally revere him for that. And that is one of the things that really kind of brought up this idea of this show is passion. It's hard to go to work every day if you don't have it. It's a little easier if you do. So we're bringing on Dr. Jeff Thompson, who is an associate professor at Brigham Young University. He earned his Ph.D. in organizational behavior with an emphasis in ethics at the University of Michigan. And his much of his focus is centered on work as a calling – and meaningful work in ethical dimensions. He's also, uh, interestingly, I'm dying to hear about this. He did a lot of research and work with zookeepers. Dr. Jeff, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks, Matt. It's good to be back. And you've been on, and we still just love, we had a big ethical lesson from you last time where <laughs> right. we kind of tricked you, and then you still figured us out. Uh, so, Jeff, okay, callings and zookeepers. <laughs> what on earth do they have in common? 
Well, first, let me just say your comments about your friend Larry are really telling. You use the word revere. Yeah. And there, and we do have a sort of reverence around people who had found this passion yeah. about their work. Um, and that's what that's what I like to research. And I'm, I'm a you lucky like to, guy. to research the passion side. I think my calling is to study calling. Actually. That's great. And I, I just love talking to people whose eyes light up when they talk about their work because mm-hmm. they know they're contributing something. And, and I do have a sense of reverence about that. So that's really cool. Thanks. Do you think it's um, – is it – do we just happen upon this? Or is it something that can actually be focused and intentionally created? Oh, that's a that's a great question. I think probably the best way to answer that is to talk about zookeepers. Yeah, okay, let's get into up. that. Now, by the way, zookeepers. Yeah. What? Why? Where? <laughs> How did you get there? Well, uh, it was kind of a whim, Matt. I Were mean, you needy? Did you need a sample? We did. Yeah, my my co-author, uh, uh, a gentleman named Stuart Bunderson at, the Uni- at Washington University in St. Louis, and I were um, casting about trying to find, figure out who we could talk to that had this sense of passion, and we wanted to find a profession where the the, the folks didn't make a lot of money, so there wasn't a lot of economic incentives, oh, where there wasn't a lot of chance for upward mobility. In other words, we wanted to find passion its purity. Yeah, right. So, you didn't want like compensated passion. That's fake. <laughs> exactly. Because if yeah. you're studying it, you want to see it right. in its pure form. And so just sort of on a whim, we thought, well, what about zookeepers? You know, we like taking our kids to the zoo. And so we started interviewing a couple of zookeepers and it just turned out to be a gold mine because these folks <laughs> are great. grossly underpaid. Oh, yeah. For what um, they're they're doing, highly qualified yeah. and well-educated in what they do. They just sacrifice a tremendous amount, but their levels of work satisfaction are off the charts. Are they really? Yeah. Um, they, I mean, they still have their gripes about sure. work. They this get upset stinks. with management yeah. um, and all of that. But um, when it comes to feeling a sense of deep purpose and meaning in their work, uh, we have never encountered another group that's really? stronger. Isn't that fa- – yeah. do, do you think you'd uncover more – in like a pure volunteer setting, like um, I don't know, I just I'm thinking like a nur- like a, a nun, a nurse, or a you know a candy striper that's just mm-hmm. there to serve. Do you think they would have higher? Yeah. In fact, you know, you're talking about healthcare professions, teaching professions, yeah. social work professions. Um, those sort of helping professions are often characterized by people who have a sense of calling about yeah. the work that they do. So you asked what calling is. Yeah. Um, that's really what we studied among zookeepers. They expressed this deep sense of conviction. And so we, we studied through interviews and through surveys what that meant to a zookeeper. And there were two uh, really big themes that came out that sort of defined hmm. um, what a calling was. And the first was hardwiring. Interesting. In other words, these zookeepers felt like they were born to do it. it they were them. animal people from day one. And so recognizing what they loved was step number one okay. in finding their calling. That's the hardwire. Hardwiring, yeah. And so I, I always talk to – when I talk to students who are struggling to find their calling, um, you know, the first question is what did you love to do as a kid? Mm-hmm. Because your gifts, your talents – your uniqueness tends to show up early in life, certainly did for the zookeepers. Well, you heard that my son's not going to be a terrorist. Did you hear that? No, I didn't hear yeah. that. Uh, he's nine, and he just basically just came out today and said, Dad, Mom, I just want you to know I'll never be a terrorist. 
Well, so that's we're hoping so he's reassuring. <laughs> I know. We were so worried. <laughs> so, so worried. Well, he checked that off his, <laughs> yeah. his list of candidates. But what's career. interesting is they were hard, hardwired, I guess, to love the animals. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't – that's just kind of the area, that's right? Because right? they could have been a vet and made a lot of money loving yeah. animals. Yeah. So that brings us to our second okay. theme. What's that one? And the second theme that really came out kind of surprised us as researchers. And we've, we've called it a sense of destiny. Oh, interesting. So they – uh, very consistently in our interviews, talked about how life just took them where they were supposed to go. They said things like, getting this job was luck. You know, it was magical in the way. They, yeah, it was cosmic. And, and that's kind of a hard thing to yeah. uh, analyze as, as a, a researcher. As a researcher. Like luck. Because it was sort of a, 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 almost a supernatural yeah, ethereal theory. Versus, yeah. um, but ironically, not a single one of the zookeepers we interviewed used religion to justify that. None of them said, God led me here. They said, uh, life brought me here. The hand of fate brought me here. So uh, when we boil those down, a sense of calling is when you um, identify your unique intrinsic passions and you observe the doors that life opens for you and you take advantage of the opportunities that are presented. So it's passion and kind of opportunity, destiny combined. Mm-hmm. Hardwiring and destiny are, are two of the main themes. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. That is interesting. Um, why? Because it's that's hard. <laughs> so this is hard to replicate. It's hard to plan for, and it drives uh, young people crazy when they look ahead and say, "Well, I want to know how to get there." Yeah. Um, there's this great, and I, I wish we could show a visual here on your radio show, but I saw a blog once that had this little diagram and it said, success, how others see it. And it had a line from point A to point B. Right. And then next it said, success, how it really happens. And that line from point A <laughs> to point B is just this squiggle All that goes over the place. everywhere. Isn't that true though? And it, it is true. And it's true of almost everyone I talk to who has found their sense of calling. Most of them, it wasn't linear. Yeah. Certainly hasn't been for me. It's a process of discovery. It's a process of being true hmm. to your gifts. It's a process of having some lousy jobs to help you figure out what you're not. Right, so right. So you can figure out yeah, what you, you are. Yeah, you got to get hit hard enough. There were a few times in my career when I thought I was completely lost. I'd gone off track. You know, yeah. I was doing stuff I didn't love. Uh-huh. But I look back on it now, and it kind of all makes sense now. Don't you think? No, mine's exact. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder though, Jeff, is it um, – have you ever, like, evaluated these people against, like, personality – traits or styles like a little Myers-Briggs like I mean do, do certain traits of people are they more inclined to choose destiny and their passion over logic look you may as well be a doctor doctor yeah. make money so so it does it tend to be a certain type of personality that's more likely to go falling finding their calling. Well, I wish I had an answer to that. That's something I'd like to study, that but is we haven't fascinating. we haven't that, done that that's yet. That's complex. I, that's good, my I my gut reaction is it I think that's the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are people who are more likely to embrace this pursuit of right. a calling. Right. Um but I also think and this may be overly optimistic, but it's what I believe. I think it's within everyone's capacity to find a sense of purpose in their yeah. work if they're true to what their unique gifts are. I think – and I think it's, 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 it's critical if you want to feel passion. I mean it will save your life. It will save your energy. It will mm-hmm. all of a sudden let everything seem more okay. 
Yeah, I, I've lived that. It gets you through your day yeah. when times are tough. Sure. I mean, I, I had a corporate job for a while that clearly was not my calling. I did not feel a sense of purpose there. And every day walking through the door was sort of a, a sick feeling. Uh-huh. And when I went home at night, I wasn't the as good of a father or husband as I think I could have been. It yeah. sort of drained at me. And it, it was important for me to recognize that so I could find a way to move on. Isn't that funny? I was so exhausted the other day because, you know, November's big and I try to get everything done in November so I can relax more in December. And I have a lot of clients I see every day and we had pushed them all. And then I had been sick. So we pushed them all into this week. So last week I was really busy, had a bunch of speeches, had the radio show, all this stuff and was spent and was literally I had 45 minutes in a snowstorm. This is where I ran into it found out that you can't slide through a roundabout because <laughs> I slide straight and they go around. Um, so in that moment, uh, though, I was exhausted on my way to another speech. It'll take two more hours, which means I won't get home till 10. And I had a letter card and two boxes of cookies waiting for me at my desk when I came out. Hmm. Dropped off by a client who then talked about how we had – our work together had saved their marriage and now they have four kids that are happy and we're a family. That's payday, and isn't all it? All of a sudden, my passions kicks back in yeah. and I'm like, OK, whatever. And honestly, I'm numb with happiness. Like, OK, yep. then I'll just go tonight. We'll do a great little speech, change some lives today right here, go home, be with my family, change those lives. I mean it – Totally re-energized. Yeah. You're touching on another aspect of calling now that we might want to explore in a little bit, and that is uh, that a calling's only a calling if it's for someone or for something. It has to be a service. Can it not be compensated? Uh, well, it can be compensated. It's got to come from the heart. If, if the compensation overwhelms the sense of giving, yeah. then it starts to eat away at your sense of calling. Let's do that. Let's take a break. We'll come back and talk about that and the compensation of a calling. Plus, because businesses are all trying to motivate their people through passion, which, and I know there's some interesting research about it. the minute you're starting to throw money at it, it kind of changes the game a little yeah. bit. Right. We'll get into that. Good stuff. Dr. Jeff Thompson, Brigham Young University Associate Professor, uh, just a stud. I don't know what else to call you. <laughs> don't know what else to call you, Jeff. I'm sure that'll look good on your Oh, boy, V-tank. if I had a nickel for every time I was told <laughs> oh, me that. Me too. <laughs> me too. We'll be back talking callings and passion right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. An advanced design for space rovers that reminds you of your pet hamster? Next. This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories of revolutionary ideas, emerging technologies, and the people behind the concepts that shape the future. NASA's most exciting and cutting-edge projects may come from the office of the Chief Technologist's NIAC program. The NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Awards promote new ways of thinking that could radically improve how we explore space in the future. A case in point is a NIAC project to design a hybrid concept for space probes to comets, asteroids, and small moons. Instead of fighting the low-gravity conditions of these places, the hybrid approach would use a base platform that releases a fleet of small robotic spheres. These instrumented spheres will roll, hop, tumble, and bounce across the target, taking advantage of the low gravity to cover lots of ground, scrambling like your pet hamster in his plastic ball. The spheres would network between themselves and their base and report the results for relay to Earth. 
This approach carries the sensors of the probe over a wider sampling area in a shorter time than a single rover. And if one sphere is lost, the rest can carry on exploring. The hybrid probe may one day go where conventional rovers can't. For Innovation Now, this is Buddy Rubino. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. Do you want to hear all your favorite BYU radio shows while you're on the go? Now you can. BYU Radio's free iPhone app places all the BYU radio programming at your fingertips through your iPhone or iPod. Enjoy all your favorites at the touch of a button. Download your free iPhone app on the Apple Store now. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, today, we are talking about your calling in life, finding your passion, reconnecting to um, this this instinct in you. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Jeff Thompson, who is a BYU professor, associate professor at BYU, and uh, loves, just loves zookeepers. I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird. But good. Uh, I also just called him a stud because of the zoo mental or the zoo mindset. So he's my. He really is. He's so fun to have on the show because not only does he know a lot, but he also knows how to explain it for us <laughs> lay folk. Um, so tell me, Jeff. Okay, we were talking about it's uh, passion is two things. No, what do we call it? Calling. Having your calling in life is two things. Your heart. You're hardwired, meaning you are hardwired to do something. It's kind of innate. It's instinctive to mm-hmm. you, I guess. And you feel a sense of destiny, kind of a mystical reason why it's just you. You mm-hmm. need to fulfill that. Is that right? Uh, why you Mystica need to fulfill it weird. and also uh, a mystical sense that life has opened the right doors for you to get where you are. Yeah. It's yeah. almost gratitude. It's like it's kind of, I guess that's after the fact, but it's anticipating you're being directed in a way yeah. by some sort of something. Yeah. Is leading you there, yeah, but not necessarily spiritual. Um, well, it can they feel spiritual, mention. but it's not religious, at least mm-hmm. for many people. Yeah, um, yeah. Talk about this. Okay, so if there's an average Joe out there driving truck, let's say, and as he's driving truck, he's sitting here thinking, uh, "Hello, don't feel called." Mm-hmm. <laughs> some do, by the way, and I know they do, and they're passionate about that, and some don't. Um. What are they supposed to do? That's a great question. Um, so the, the big one of the big questions I like to, to address is how do you find your calling if you're stuck in a lousy job? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, and we've all had that where I, I'm, I'm working for a place yeah. that it, it's not me. It doesn't feel right. And you got to pay I, the bills. And I don't know how to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Well, if we go back to the definition of calling is a sense of hardwiring. When we're in a job that feels lousy, it's not, that the, it's not necessarily that the job is lousy. It, right. It's that we're a lousy fit. Well, that means that we have to reconnect with our own higher hard wiring. What is it about us that's that's unique? So uh, this might sound like uh, unusual advice for people that are in a lousy job. I mean, you know, the yeah. typical advice is, well, quit, find a new job. Well, you know, if you don't have a paycheck, that can be right. rough. My advice is throw your heart into it. Right. Do what you can at your job. To, to express your own talents, right? The way that you understand yes. how you're unique is by 
excelling and finding out where you can excel. So whether you're in a cubicle or in a in a truck or any any position where you feel like you're not expressing your full abilities, mm-hmm. find ways to express your uniqueness at work. Why would you want to leave a job not knowing what your passion is? And then go find a job not knowing what your passion is. So instead, stay in your job and go find – go give yourself to it. Go find a way – go find your passion yeah. then and see – I mean if that doesn't reignite it, then at least you know what you're passionate about. Well, and the funny thing is sometimes you can't really see it. A lot of times our gifts are so second nature to us yeah. that we don't recognize mm-hmm. we're good at something or we're right. unique at something. But by throwing your heart into the workplace – other people start to say, exactly. wow, that guy handles things really different. Uh-huh. You know, that person um, is different than the other employees we have that's in this so organization. True. And so that's how destiny comes into play. Doors open for people who express their gifts at work. Because they become attractive. Like if I'm a boss and you're the guy that seems to always be up on the news about the stock market, which is important to our business. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, you may just normally be whatever, but you're you're the guy that is the go-to guy in our department. Now all of a sudden, I now know I can see your gift maybe better than you can. That's right. And then that becomes attractive to me, which may be more promotable, more usable, more advanced. Exactly. And I'm the poster child of this. I mentioned my corporate job where I was unhappy. I did the typical thing. I withdrew into my shell. Uh-huh. It was the stupidest thing I could do. Yeah. I thought I'm going to put my head down, get through this, and right. then I'll find the job I love. But as I look back on that, there were so many chances for me to grow, for me to reach out to people. Mm-hmm. What I tell students and people who are in jobs they're unhappy with is is this – Figure out how you can make the place better. Yeah. Who, who can you serve? Who can you help? And by helping other people, you'll start to reveal to yourself and to others what you have to offer. Love it. Get it. And, and I guess you're more naturally going right to your core because you're there to serve. You're not there to derive any other benefit but just lose yourself. And when you lose yourself in what you love, it's going to float to the top. Exactly. And then others will start to see it. That's powerful. Yeah. I'm thinking of like a truck driver. I had a truck driver neighbor that was like – I go, do you actually – so do you like driving? And he's like, honestly, hate it. Mm-hmm. But I like learning. And in my truck, I learn a ton because yeah. we're on, he listens to book, books on tape all day long. Mm-hmm. And he's a, so he sees it as his learning time. Yeah. And it's not just paying dues. It's learning. Yeah. Passion. See, I would have a conversation with that gentleman and say, okay, what kind of books do you learn from? Do you, are you starting to see a theme and yeah. a pattern? Because that's going to reveal things uh-huh. about what makes you tick, what Wouldn't your heart is. And then, yeah, what do you talk to about to the, all the other drivers about? Mm-hmm. Exactly. This one likes talking about business. He wants to grow a trucking business, start hiring people. Interesting. <clears throat> so his are a lot about business books. Excellent yeah. stuff. Now, Jeff, tell, go back because you talked about the money. This uh, companies can't just buy your passion. Tell us about that. You know what? Um, it, it turns out if you do it right, passion is pretty cheap. Yeah. For the company's perspective, uh, let me tell you about a little bit of research that I didn't do, but a good friend of mine did at uh, at, at Wharton, uh, which is a business school, University of Pennsylvania. Um, he studied a terrible job. It was the job of a of a, a telefund worker. A telefund are the students who call you up and hey, ask you to pay you money donate? for university, okay, right? right? We get those calls. Well, that job is a hard, hard yeah. job to do. And the turnover is horrible. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they keep a student maybe for a month or two. <laughs> Very unhappy workers right. calling and begging for money. So he went in and said, what would happen if I took half of these telefund workers and – 
and gave them um, an experience that the other half didn't have. And the experience was this. I'm going to bring in a scholarship recipient, a student, whose money had come directly from the efforts of that telefund. And I'm going to let them have a five-minute conversation with half of those telefund workers. Hmm. So for five minutes, the student sat down and gave a testimonial about how much it meant to to him or her to receive that money. Um, almost immediately, there was a huge difference both in the number of calls those wow. were, workers were making, and in their effectiveness. They were they approximately doubled their effort, interesting, but they they tripled their, their effectiveness output, in getting yeah. in getting money, um, and they were much happier about their work. Uh, and so his his research is built on that. That's just one example. Uh, there's just tremendous research that when we have a chance to connect with the people we're helping, yes, that's when what ignites our passion. And Powerful. and so you know you can dangle the bonus, you can right. dangle the no. you know the the special parking space, but when people feel like they're helping someone and there's a face and a name to that person, they can so touch different. them. That changes how we think about what the work does we it do. change. I mean, I guess it changes our heart. Like now it's like – I guess that's what passion is, right? Passion is your your heart's in it. Yeah. It's yours. You, it's like you own it. You change the ownership of it. Passion is about giving. Um, if you think about – I like to use the example of a great artist. Mm. So you have a great artist who makes beautiful masterpieces. Well, does she take them and put them in her attic so she can go up and look at them every now and then? Right. Or does no. she – want to display them in right. as many galleries and museums as she can because the act of creation is also the act of giving. That's and cool. you're, you're not an artist until you have uh, people that appreciate what mm-hmm. you give. Work, work is the same. We have this universal fundamental need to, um, to have our work make a difference somewhere. And so if companies simply connect you to the impact that you're having and, and a sense of giving. Oh, yeah. That's like I said. That's a cheap way to increase passion. The um, there's a quote I've heard at a company I worked at that was um, said, "No margin, no mission." And I always like the reverse of that, which was no mission, no margin. So <laughs> if I if I have my mission, it's easier to just keep the margin going. It's easier to keep being dynamic. It's sometimes we kind of reverse it, don't we? Yeah. Like, you know, you, it's great to be all giving, but we got to make a profit here. Well, it, you, you touch on a really interesting thing, and our research revealed some of this. This comes down to a leadership question. We found that, that zookeepers are much happier when their leaders, leaders are minding the books, but the, the zookeepers want the leaders to talk to them about conservation and mission. So leaders have to sort of speak out of both sides of their mouths. Yeah. They mind the books behind closed doors because no mission, yeah, no margin. Yeah, we got to have the we got to have the I mean, no margin, no mission. Right. But when uh, when you're talking to employees, Talk they mission. need to hear mission, mission, mission. It's so that's motivation one on one, isn't it? it? Well, it 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 is. It's 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 tougher than well, it's a lot tougher. <laughs> and then imagine trying to get a company with thirty thousand people or ten thousand yeah. people on the same yeah. mission. Top. Okay, we're going to come back with Dr. Jeff Thompson. We're talking calling in life. When we come back, we, we're going to give you some tools, some ideas, uh, hopefully some direction in how to reignite or find the passion, find the purpose. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back after this break on right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.
KBYU-FM, HD2, Provo. For those BYU radio programs you may have missed or even just want to hear again, subscribe to BYU Radio on YouTube. There you can find archived shows from programs like The Morning Show. Just search BYU Radio on YouTube and subscribe. Good afternoon, I'm Sam McCall for Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. An official investigation has found flying insects and a loose bird at an affiliate of the New England Compacting Company, which has been blamed for this year's deadly meningitis outbreak. Other unsterile conditions were also found at the facility. The Food and Drug Administration has been probing into the company after the rare fungal virus was indisputably linked to the pharmaceutical company, with investigators even discovering the fungus growing large enough for the naked eye to see inside vials of a steroid treatment produced by the company. Issues with the classification of patient complaints have also been reported by the investigation. Amid accusations of misuse of campaign funds, Illinois Congressman Jesse Jackson Jr. has hired a lawyer reportedly to negotiate with the government officials about a possible plea deal which could mean resignation and jail time for the representative. Last week, the Chicago Sun-Times reported that Jackson is being investigated for using campaign funds to decorate his home and buy a $40,000 watch for a female friend. Jackson easily won re-election on November 6th, despite recent mental health concerns that led him to spend six weeks in treatment for bipolar disorder. Cleanup after Hurricane Sandy is finally starting to finish up, which means the bills are starting to pour in. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is asking the federal government for $30 billion in aid money to help pay the mounting costs associated with the cleanup. Long Island Power Authority announced today that they are restoring power to the almost almost all of the remaining 75,000 people who have been in the dark after Sandy for two straight weeks. Public transportation is also coming back online on a larger scale, making commutes for many New Yorkers much easier. Cuomo's $30 billion aid plan will go to things like repairing repaying emergency crews that worked overtime, repairing bridges and other commuter lanes, and creating a loan fund for small businesses that have sustained significant damage due to the storm. The latest Bond movie had the biggest opening weekend in the franchise's history by over $20 million. Skyfall raked in $87.8 million over its first three days, putting it on track to become the most successful 007 flick ever. Forecasters think there's still a lot more to be made by the movie, with the lucrative Thanksgiving weekend on its way as well. The 23-film series' previous champion was the 2008 feature Quantum of Solace, which also cast Daniel Craig as the legendary spy, but just four years later, some think that Skyfall could be the first Bond film to ever breach the $200 million mark. You're listening to BYU Radio on Sirius XM 143. I'm Sam McCall. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. It's Dr. Jeff Thompson's birthday. He's the birthday boy. Thank you. How happy birthday. Thanks. 
This is, I mean, you're only 30? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> why do your hips, why do you walk like your hips are out of socket? <laughs> if you're only 30, Jeff. Happy birthday, my friend. That's fun. And then you get to be on BYU Radio nationwide on your birthday. Couldn't be a better gift. You look young. Thank you. Healthy, vibrant. <laughs> it's easy to say when you're on the air. On the air. That's the neat thing about radio is uh, <laughs> we, we really look like a mess, quite honestly. <laughs> his shirt's all messed up. It's like he's been sleeping in his clothes. <laughs> no, good to have you back. Dr. Jeff Thompson is associate professor of, at Brigham Young University in organizational behavior. That's cool. Uh, because I didn't know organizations behaved. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> behave and misbehave. That's right, they do. And people behave too. So we're talking about callings. Now, uh, before we get into all the solutions for some ways to do this, how we find our calling, uh, you've already kind of given us some insight. Um, apparently, it's not ideal to have my calling be my job. Well, there are downsides. Yeah, what what are those? Yeah, and in fact, our our, our study is titled the the double edged sword of deeply meaningful work, um, and part of the downside. So I mentioned two definitional traits of callings. There's really two big downsides that our research uncovered as well. One of them is sacrifice. Yes, you don't really get a sense of meaning unless you're willing to pay for it. Yes. In the zookeeper's case, you know they're coming in late hours. They're doing backbreaking work. They're making. Yeah poverty wages yeah. to do what they do. And it smells. It smells really bad. Totally. Yeah. And so they, they do some pretty unsavory stuff right. on the job. But the interesting thing is when we talk to them about that, we expect them to say, even though I make all these sacrifices, this is my calling. What they hmm. say is, because I make these sacrifices, it's my calling. Oh, interesting. You don't have a calling unless you're willing to give something for it. Right. And giving is part of of the meaning. Yeah. And that was a really, that was a big light that bulb that went on, went on for us as we were talking to these zookeepers. Their work is an offering. And if it was all pleasure all the time, it wouldn't be as meaningful to them. Isn't that interesting? Um, giving is part of the meaning. So it's like you have to, it's almost like your meaning is commensurate to the flesh lost. <laughs> if, so if you're giving enough, your meaning goes up. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, it doesn't come cheap. It's so, and it's counterintuitive to what we would think it should be like. You know what I mean? Yeah, well... Like you'd, you think you'd reach a point where you no longer need to sacrifice and now you can just ride the wave of... Yeah. But that's true in my profession as well. I mean, I think the time that I... The, the, the point in my career where I stop taking away my valuable time to help a struggling student, I'm going to lose something yeah. in my sense of purpose for what I'm doing. And we all make sacrifices to, to give the offerings that we give. Well, and that's actually very telling because you happen to be one of the most uh, appreciated professors at BYU on the professor professor rating is that right? System. I haven't looked at Did that. Did you not know that? No. no. Uh, where are our people? that had, They just told me that they've been out looking and they checked you out and you're the bomb. <laughs> well, I there's don't another what birthday the, what, present. What's the Thank rating you. system called, Rob? Do you remember? Um, it's I Rate My Professor. The the, uh, rate My Professor. Is... We got it. Uh, rate My Professor. Yeah, rate my professors. That's it, dude. They love you, Jeff. <laughs> Thank you. They do. You're the bomb. I think he even gets the little chili pepper. That the chili pepper is the one that means you're hot. <laughs> well, I pay a lot for those ratings, you know. Yeah, we have <laughs> a little cash on the side. Yeah, really, though. But that says it because you're willing to sacrifice, which means probably staying late, going to Ghana mm-hmm. for studies, and to take kids probably there for that those kind of uh, graduate student learning. So. 
It's real, though. So one yeah. key to this is, I guess, one downside is you're going to sacrifice. And yeah. it's probably going to be kind of permanent. I mean, you're going to you're going to want to constantly be giving more. I, I mean, that I say it in my job. And I literally I am so driven and in love with what I do that it, it doesn't feel like sacrifice, but it does to the mm-hmm. point that I'm sick and driving with bald tires. Yeah, I think if you have a calling and you're living a calling, you probably always feel behind. Yeah. You always feel overtaxed because oh, you, yeah. you have to get – so there's there's a downside of sacrifice. And I guess that's the payoff, and yet – no, and then family time and other things too. Yeah. What's the other – The other one is a sense of moral obligation. Mm, oh, my so, word. So here's, here's the thing with zookeepers – they they say, wow, I was born to be an animal person. This is my thing to take care of animals. Yeah. Who's going to do it if I don't do if it? If I don't do it, who will? I have to do this job because no one else understands or loves animals as much as I do. Mm-hmm. So if I decide I want to go get a, a cushy job and make more money, it will be a moral failing, not just a career choice. Uh, and they carry this sense of true. burden around. And we found that that's pretty consistent with other callings too. When you find what you're good at, you have this moral imperative oh, my heavens. to do it. Yeah, I felt that actually. Like, if I don't take these clients on, who will? Mm-hmm. I mean, we've had to call police on clients of mine. Yeah. And yet I felt like, really, if I don't help this guy right now with what I know and where he is, then who will? Yeah. How, who's, how's the next guy going to figure out what he's got when he hasn't seen the complete meltdown like I have? That's right. Oh, my word. Yeah. So calling is a burden. It is a burden. It's a burden. But boy, it's not any bigger burden than sitting in a call center wanting to <laughs> die. You know what I mean? That, and then be hoping, I guess, that, you know, I, I'm, I guess I'm done in a half hour. Then we'll just go have fun and have my life. Yep. I mean, that's a long life, too. It is a long life, and it's a sort of segmented life. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you don't feel like you're integrated. You don't feel whole mm-hmm. or integrity, I guess. Yeah. When I go home now, I mentioned, you know, my corporate period, mm-hmm. not feeling like I was a very good father or husband. And uh, when I go home now, I might be tired, but I'm I'm energized. I'm yeah. proud. I like talking to my kids yeah. about my work. And there's a seamless connection between my uh-huh. work, the work me and the family me. And don't you think that that's critical for the family? So, I mean, if you grow up not finding your passion or your calling, you end up probably showing kids not maybe to find passion and calling. I mean, it's good. Like, your kids probably revere you because they see you love what... Back to the reverence. I have right. teenagers. Oh, yeah. Never mind. Yeah. Good point. No, good point. Yeah, that's useless. Uh, anyway, but your kids, hypothetically, if they weren't teenagers, when they grow out of that... Let's hope. Yeah. They will. But it really is powerful to think that they know that dad just thoroughly loves what he's doing. And to know that you're good at it, like, that's such a good lesson. Yeah. Well, I hope I hope they see that passion. Yeah. I want to exemplify that for them. Just take them to rateyourprofessor.com <laughs> and say, look, I've got three chilies. They think I'm hot, kids. Um, that's great. So, Jeff, what do we do? Uh, what are some things we can do, I guess, to identify? You already talked about maybe involve other people. Let other people that might be able to pick out your talents mm-hmm. involve that. What else can we do to find our passion and our Destiny, where we're hardwired to do something and our destiny. Yeah. Let, let me start, if I might, by talking about you, – you brought in kids. So let me, let me talk a little bit about how you might help your children and mm-hmm. then I'll talk about yeah. how you do it for yourself. So anytime you go to a graduation ceremony, you're going to hear a speech of, you know, go out there and do what you love. Yeah. You know, you're the captain of your you destiny. Can do it. And, That's right. And um, 
I always cringe a little bit in those talks because they're very self-centered. Yeah. Go do what you love. Go yeah. do what you want to do. Now, that's important. But the irony is you're more likely to find your passion if you think – if you give your kids advice to say, what can you give? Yeah. Who can you help? That's great. One of the best pieces of advice I got as an MBA student was find a problem to solve. Hmm. Find an issue that you can address. That, that's huge. That felt like a lot of pressure to me. Yeah. But that's the sort of message our children need to think of. If we really want to equip them to find a calling, they need to be thinking about contributing mm-hmm. as much as, if not more than, what makes them happy. Yeah. Turns out those things go together. Oh, totally. When you're contributing, you're happy. Yeah. And, and it, seems like, it seems like a backdoor way to find peace faster and to find passion. I mean, everyone tries to go the front door like, how can I be rich? Mm-hmm. But it seems like if you went through the back door of how can I serve and you get really good at serving, money could come. I mean, there's a lot, I guess, other than zookeepers. But I mean, if you're a zoo owner or if you're a a habitat for endangered animals and that's your passion, I mean, you can eventually make a living too. There are people that are very wealthy pursuing that cause. Uh They end up on television, on Discovery Channel, that sort of thing. But let that be the lagging indicator. Exactly. And the leading indicator is let me serve the world. Exactly. How can I make the world better? Couldn't agree more. Uh, That's the avenue to finding excellence. Isn't that true? And usually excellence pays off in the long run. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it sure beats like mediocrity. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Even though mediocrity is a lot more fun. Oh, you would know nothing about that. I <laughs> do. I totally do. That's when it comes to dancing, totally mediocre. Um, what else could we do? So uh, the advice – and I, I touched on this a little bit, but I'm very serious about this. I encourage people to think very carefully about their childhood huh. because our gifts – surface very early. I have a lot of students come to my office and say, "Ah, I don't know what I want to do. And I say, what do you like? Well, I like helping people. And I answer, that's not specific enough. Yeah. How do you like helping people? What is it that you do? And when they think back on their childhood, they'll tell me stories like, well, I don't know. I was the kid who would always organize the neighborhood soccer game. Great. Okay. You have an innate gift for collective action. That is you know, powerful. That, and, and it is, but they you usually don't recognize no, that because no. it happens so naturally. Well, you for call you. it collective action. No one would call it that. You know that, Jim. Yeah, well, that's true. You just say, hey, you should be an organizer. <laughs> you're you're could, an organizer. Work, you could, that's you right. Could, you're a community organizer. But that's. That is such a good idea. Yeah. So maybe you're the kid that uh, spun fantastical tales and could hold people in rapt attention. Uh-huh. Well, then you've got a gift for communication and you know pitching a story. That is, yeah. um, did you like to build with Legos? Well, you've got uh-huh. a talent for spatial design, yeah. and there are a lot of professions where that comes into play. What if you only ate ice cream? Uh, maybe a taste tester or a, <laughs> work a food for a lab. network. There you That's go. Right. Work at the food network. You, know, you joke about that, but there are people who uh, you know who exhibit it. a real affinity for food and culinary oh, arts yeah. early on. So there's really almost nothing that happens in your childhood recreationally that doesn't reveal something that's enduring. That is such you. a good so, – uh, what's the question you asked specifically about your childhood? What? Where did you uh, – like how do you yeah, get What there? did you play – when you didn't have to do anything else. Yeah. When it was your choice, what did you spend your time doing? And and, and there's probably a variety of answers for any individual, right. but they're they're indicative of something that's unique about you. Yeah, no, that's a great. Okay, going to the past. I guess you could go to the future too. 
If well, you, you know, if you could see yourself doing anything for the rest of your life, what would that look like? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question too. And a lot of people just go immediately to retirement. You know, oh, lying on the boat. beach. You know, <laughs> sipping a sipping a drink. Yeah. Well, uh, that's not really. I, I guess the question I <laughs> would ask is again. what What would you like on your on your gravestone? Yeah. You know what What would you like to be remembered for as a legacy? And answering that question thoughtfully is going to reveal some uniqueness about you as totally. well. For me, I'm a researcher and I am a teacher. Yeah. On my tombstone, I I I think I want it more about the teaching than about the research. Even though I love both, uh-huh. I know my calling is rooted the in the classroom. Well, it seems like at a funeral, that's what it ends up being about anyway. Like this, Larry Sagers that is the horticulturist that passed away in Utah that everyone loves. All the stories come back to the people mm-hmm. and the relationships. and the So in the end, it's all of his giving to people one by one. So, yeah. you know, it's but it's interesting. We're so prone to the act, aren't we? Like, the, what, so what do you do? What's your job that you do? Mm-hmm. But the do may not matter as much as the be mm-hmm. or the who, who you're with. Yeah, I think that's a good insight. That's powerful. That's yeah. a great... Um, that's a great question you asked about the future. There's a lot. By the way, all these answers are in them, right? They know. It's a self-revelation. I mean, uh-huh. as you, it, it, it's sort of we think we know until we take the time mm-hmm. to really, in a disciplined way, force ourselves to think through that. And uh, I encourage people to just sort of do free journaling yeah. and, and writing their ideas um, because they, they tend to pop out of you and you don't recognize mm-hmm. them until you see them. So if you if you're sitting out there driving a truck, sitting in a call center, or whatever, mm-hmm. or whatever you're doing, and you're not loving it, you're saying take some time to go be real with yourself and ask some questions. Yeah. Think about your childhood. What did you used to love to do? Think about your future. Mm-hmm. What else? Anything else they should be doing? Courage. I mean, there does come yeah. a point. Um, you know, particularly if you're in an organization where you are feeling stuck, you, you know, you throw your heart into it and you're the best fill in the blank that you can right. be. Uh, but there, there may come a point when you have to say, okay, it's time for me to jump. You know, uh, life is short. We only get one of them. And, uh, even if there are uh, risks associated with it, some of the most satisfying, Life events comes with the oh, courage yeah. of just saying, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna try something different now." I'll, I'll, In I'm consultation right. with you know your, your significant family, right. the people your who banker, are depending upon your you, credit card holder, exactly. Everybody needs to be involved in that. It's interesting because too, and sometimes and don't either or it, I guess too, where you think you have to jump because you could probably create a runway while yes. at your other work. Like you're yeah. saying, go start serving, go get into it, go start being good at what you're good at and maybe use that as a segue yeah. out. Another another way to do that, um, actually some, some other colleagues of mine have written about how you deal with a missed calling if you figure out, oh, I'm a teacher, but I should have been yeah. a musician. Yeah. And they tell all these great stories about people that bring their calling, their desired calling into their work. Interesting. So I'm thinking of a, of a teacher that would you know, wishes he was a, 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 musician, a musician and he starts bringing music into the classroom and teaching yeah. through music. And, you know, that may lead uh-huh. to a different sort of career or it may just be a way for him to express his excellence. That's right. At and, his work. And find the passion yeah. in that space. I, you know, Matt, I'm not sure that there's a perfect job for everybody. No. Um, I think many of us are going to spend our lives in imperfect jobs with imperfect organizations. But that doesn't mean you can't find your calling. No, your I... calling, if we go back to the definition, it's bringing your unique gifts mm-hmm. to service. 
And so if you can find a unique way to do that in an imperfect organization, you can enhance your sense of purpose even if you're not living in an ideal world. Oh, man, you know a lot. <laughs> you are good. <laughs> Jeffrey well, Thompson. <laughs> Uh, Jeff, you. where do you want to get? Where do you want them to find you? Now, this may not be a good idea, so be very careful. Oh no, actually, um, I, um, I, I I keep a blog on this topic. Oh, I'm, good. Uh, where? My co-author and I are working on uh, on writing some books, so uh, you can find my work at uh, yourlifecalling.blogspot.com. And I've got a lot of stories in there of people we've interviewed. We interviewed. Uh, the the bear whisperer who's on Animal Planet. We've oh, is he still alive? Uh, uh, he he is whispering thriving. to a bear. <laughs> he is has he? never been injured by a bear. Oh my heavens! Yeah, um, spoke with uh, uh, a couple of authors who've written about unique experiences. So it's it's That's a fun powerful. blog, and uh, that will link you into some of the other work that I've done. Yourlifecalling.blogspot.com. That's correct. And Dr. Jeff Thompson's his name. He again is a stud and a birthday boy. <laughs> And so appreciate you being here, Jeff. Thanks Seriously, so much, Matt. I love having it. you. Uh, we're, we're having you back. I don't care. Again, I don't care if you want to. You're coming back. It's my I'd favorite hour. And because Sky just looks at me like, quit talking. Let's go to break. <laughs> I'm on it, Sky. Sky, we're in our callings over here. Okay. <laughs> Did you hear Sky's calling is to just push the buttons on the board for the rest of his life? Is that, well, whatever That's makes what I love him happy. To do. It's, yeah, you can almost hear the enthusiasm. <laughs> Liar. We're taking a break here, folks. We will be back to wrap up the show. Thanks again to Dr. Jeff Thompson. Go to yourlifecalling.blogspot.com to get more information from his website. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. ultimate cleaning tool of the future might be plain water with a little something extra this is innovation now bringing you stories of revolutionary ideas emerging technologies and the people behind the concepts that shape the future we often forget how many ways water is used in our daily living as well as in many industrial processes but wasting clean water in these daily tasks is expensive So when Professor Tim Layton and Dr. Peter Birkin of the University of Southampton perfected a more efficient way to wash things, it caught the attention of industry. The pair won the Royal Society Brian Mercer Award for Innovation and about $440,000 in prize money to develop their new device for market. Their cleaner connects to any water tap and creates a powerful stream of water containing microscopic bubbles vibrated with ultrasonics. The bubbles can get into very tiny spaces to disrupt dirt as they collapse. Ultrasonic cleaning isn't new, But before this invention, you needed a container big enough to submerge whatever you were cleaning. This system is as much as 100 times more efficient than current methods and can be used in everything from sterilizing operating room tools to cleaning vegetables to replacing pressure washers. And yes, it makes your hands really clean. For Innovation Now, this is Buddy Rubino. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. BYU Radio's Highway 89 features unedited performances from talented musicians. With genres from rock to classical and everything in between, Highway 89 can take you on a musical journey, all from the performance studio at the heart of BYU Radio. 
Join us for this mixtape adventure with Highway 89, Monday through Saturday at 10 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM 143, BYU Radio. Welcome back, my friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're wrapping up the show about callings, about your purpose. Uh, loved it. I'm telling you, Jeff Thompson, man, he's incredible. And we're going to be we're bringing on Robbie Boy here, Rob Sanders, the man, the myth, the legend. Rob, you're bringing us somebody that has identified their calling. I guess they're no longer with us, though. Uh, who's what's the story? The Gandhi. Gandhi. Mohandas Gami. Gandhi, Mohatma Gandhi, Mohandas, <laughs> Mohandas. Who? But they also say he went by Mahatma. Mahatma. Yeah, Mahatma. Gandhi. I think it's like a title, right? I know. I feel bad. One of the most famous people in history, and I can't pronounce it. Well, that's name. why people, most people just go with Gandhi. And I'm no historian, so let's put the uh, disclaimer right up front here. But tell us what you've learned. I didn't even realize it, but the longest depiction in film or in media I had ever seen of Gandhi was how he was depicted in Weird Al Yankovic's UHF <laughs> film. And I don't think that was accurate. Have you not watched the movie Gandhi that is no, the longest I, but, movie but, of all time? No, but you know, this, after doing a little show prep today, I think I should. It's great. Because he's a fascinating guy. So I thought I... Yeah, so what I did you learn? Because this is a guy that has passion. The 13-page Wikipedia article and highlighted things that I thought were interesting, which you probably already know, but we I don't. don't. Lessons. So I'm going to share. So he was born in 1869 in a coastal town, and I guess his parents were pretty well-to-do. They had uh, quite a bit. And so that got him into a situation where he was in the arranged marriages. He had uh, he was actually uh, paired off uh, to a girl when they were both about 13 years old. Right. And by uh, 15, they'd had their first kid who didn't survive, but they later had four kids. And that uh, put him in a situation where he actually went to London and studied law. Really? Oh, that's right. That's so right. He came was a lawyer back to India to practice as a barrister, but he was so shy, which seems comical now because yeah. of all the advocacy he did. Yeah, he, you'd think he was this huge major voice and advocate, but no. Yeah, he was so shy, he uh, basically got booted to a desk job. So he had no other job. So he took this one-year contract in South Africa, got there and saw, boy, as an Indian person and as a Hindu, I'm not treated that well. And then look at all the... Uh, you know, native people living in South Africa, they're not getting treated that well by the British either. So he stuck around for over 20 years yes. helping them out, which is something where you, you move to a place, think it's going to be one year, you end up sticking around for uh, 20. Made his way back to India. And then as uh, time went on, he just he just said, yeah, this, the way the British are treating us is just not uh, turning out that well. So he started uh, working with what they called the uh, Indian uh, National Congress. Yeah, so kind of a political role. Yeah, sounds like an advocacy group. And started a steady escalation of demands to try to slowly get good treatment, but ultimately to get independence. And it it made a huge mess. I mean, he had, uh, I think at one point, there was something called the Salt March. I I didn't read deeply into it, but I'm sure uh, as you're driving, you know the story a lot better than I do. Is this the salt that, mines or the – yeah, keep going. Something to do with some tax they didn't pay, and I mm-hmm. apologize for my ignorance. Cost him seven years in jail. Busted. How, yeah, and how would I feel after seven years in jail? I'd walk out, uh, you know, hey, uh, Rob, you want to pick up this cause? 
No, I'm done. My good. I'm, I'm gonna good. just go get a job. Not committing crimes. <laughs> just kind of stay out of the limelight. But, yeah. But he picked up right where he left off, and uh, really kept going. And little things along the way made some progress. And the key behind it is he did it all through nonviolence. Yeah. Peaceful resistance. He was able to. Change. He was a pragmatist. He says, it's not about the ideology. It's about trying to just take something and one little bit at a time work within the existing system through peaceful ways, yeah. nonviolent ways, like not paying a tax, not paying a fee. Yeah. Just slowly just resisting. And by the way, when you resist with tens of thousands of people, but the, see, his strength invigorated everyone else, right? That's he got the followers to start buying in to this peaceful resistance. People were dying because they were fighting against these these situations. Instead of fighting, he would just rebel peacefully. Yeah, with and thousands of for followers. the most part, it worked. But the key takeaway I got is he didn't get everything he wanted. No. He imagined a unified India. Pakistan got split off. The the Arabs and the Hindus, or, or excuse me, the Muslims and the Hindus kind of split. Yeah, and and it was not the world he envisioned. No, but. That wasn't his goal all along. It was just to try to get some of what you wanted. Truly, uh, Gandhi, uh, remarkable guy. A great example. Okay, uh, seriously great example. And as Dr. Jeff Thompson taught us earlier, it's about where, you know, your gifts, your your destiny starts to meet your opportunity. That is uh, what this is about. Thanks for joining us. Gandhi had a quote that said, you must become the change you seek in others. We challenge you to get out there, find your calling, go deep, figure out what you have to offer this world that if you don't offer, that song goes unplayed. And uh, join us again tomorrow right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. BYU All-American quarterback, Robbie Bosco. We were playing at the University of Pittsburgh. It was my first collegiate football game, and I was so nervous. I wasn't even sure if I should be the quarterback or not. My first three passes were incomplete. The first pass I threw was about 20 feet over the receiver's head. I couldn't believe I threw it like that. And then my next two passes were just weren't even close to being completed. As I was walking off the field, Coach Edwards was walking towards me, and I thought, oh, boy, this is the end. He's going to yank me, and he's going to tell me that they're going to let another guy come in and see what he can do. But he came over, put his hands on my shoulder, told me to relax, told me that I was their guy and not to worry about anything else, just go out there and play. Having him believe in me changed my life. Chances are the relationships that changed your life started at BYU. Share your story at alumni.byu.edu slash update. Remember when. Remember why. BYU alumni connected for good.